Thank you froze, Kyle. Rutro. The show never ends now. It just it just stays on forever. It sounds like a Black Mirror episode. Yes. Oh gosh. That's true. I'm going to start getting in this into episode of Peach Pod forever. The classist perspectives of having teachers purchase PPE for their students and the personnel issues with nurses being shared between schools. I can go forever. Oh, we're losing uh, Rachel too. Did I lose everybody? No. Why are you and me so clear and everyone else so not? I don't know. I am in a closet. Who's okay, sound off. Who's still here? Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. You know, enjoying enjoying the Meyer apocalypse as always. Also joining us on today's podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, y'all. Um, I'm doing pretty well. Also enjoying life. Um, you know, life is always interesting. I will give it that. And then we have uh, actually a really exciting show to share with y'all today. We have a new contributor and a guest on today's show. Joining Peach Pod as a brand new contributor is Nabila Islam. Uh, Nabila was a candidate uh, in the Democratic primary uh, in Georgia's 7th Congressional District. I mean, you'll be hearing her on the podcast this fall. Nabila, welcome to Peach Pod. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm super excited. And then also joining us today as a guest is Rachel Polly. Rachel is the president of the Young Democrats of Georgia. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. All right. So we are excited to share this show with y'all today. We are going to talk about, uh, in our first topic, the life and legacy of Congressman John Lewis. Uh, Congressman Lewis passed away um, about two weeks ago now, but... Uh, over this last weekend, uh, we saw, and, and you may have also seen, um, a, a celebration of his life and a mourning of his passing. Uh, he laid in state at the Capitol in Atlanta and in Washington, and uh, these really moving images that came out of Selma, Alabama, as he was pulled across the the Edmund Pettus Bridge, um, the, the site of, of so many important moments in his life. So we're going to reflect on on his legacy and also talk about the process that Democrats went through uh, to uh, put somebody else on the ballot in his place this fall. And then for our second topic this week, we are also going to update on the latest with COVID. Um, so as Georgia continues to set Record numbers of COVID cases. Governor Kemp has filed a lawsuit against Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms over local mask mandates and business restrictions. And against this backdrop of uncontrolled community spread, teachers, parents, and school leaders are agonizing over what are really just a set of bad choices that they face this fall um, in terms of reopening schools and in some efforts to get back to normal. Uh, but before we get into that stuff, uh, Nabila, we'd like to take a moment to introduce listeners to you. Listeners probably remember hearing from you as a candidate uh, when you were in that race in Georgia's 7th Congressional District. But can you start and just tell listeners a little bit more about yourself and a little bit more about the kinds of work that you're going to be doing um, after this after this campaign season? Absolutely. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm really glad to be back on 
Uh, I ran for Congress for 15 months in the 7th Congressional District. Um, was not successful, but very proud of the campaign that we ran. Um, you know, I was advocating for Medicare for All, a student debt cancellation, a Green New Deal, and really talking about uh, policies in a way that uh, usually don't get talked about in the suburbs. And so I'm actually, uh, you know, the daughter of Bangladeshi immigrants, and I grew up in Gwinnett County, which is the fourth most uh, diverse county in the country, and was running to give, um, you know, my community a, uh, a voice that they've never had, something that was reflective of our community and our diversity and our values. And I've been actually been working in democratic politics right out of college. So I've worked um, up and down the ballot on city, state, congressional, presidential elections. Uh, and then I was a candidate myself. And so right now, I just launched a, a new pack called the Progressive List. It's a national pack that will give progressives a boost in the very beginning. And it's basically what ends up happening with a lot of candidates, including myself, is that organizations, institutions will wait until a candidate catches fire at the very end before they come in with resources. Uh, but sometimes it's a little too late. And so my pack is going to uh, focus on investing in candidates in the beginning so that they can become early front runners and have the resources, um, have the uh, knowledge to you know, choose good staff and consultants and you know teach them how to do call time and connect them with organizations early on uh, up and down the ballot from federal, state, and local. And in addition to that, I'm also helping my county party um, uh, help with help them with a uh, get out the vote effort uh, for this November's election. I don't know if you guys saw, but the New York Times said, um, if we can run up the score in Gwinnett County, we can flip the state blue. So I'm still invested in my community and uh, trying to flip uh, the state blue. Well, Nabila was a really compelling voice uh, for progressive issues. The, you know, the ones she mentioned, Medicare for All, Green New Deal, student debt cancellation. Um, so we are really excited to have her insight and analysis on the podcast this fall. So let's start here uh, with our remembrance of, of John Lewis. And I think the place to start is actually in some ways to think about his legacy and what it means for continued fights for racial justice. Today, John Lewis spent much of the 1960s fighting for racial justice in the streets, on buses, and at lunch counters across the South. And that work, which is seeking to overcome historical lever historical legacies of slavery and institutional racism that date back to the nation's founding, that work is so often described as, as moving this nation towards a more perfect union. But that work really lays the foundation for continued fights for racial justice, and no fight has been more visible in recent weeks than the fight for justice in the criminal legal system. And so you probably caught this interview a few weeks ago, but we uh, talked to Destiny Bryant. She's a candidate for district attorney in Newton and Walton counties. Um, she is somebody who is running to change, you know, make, make significant changes to criminal legal policies. And, and so we actually wanted to start with her and give her an opportunity to reflect on Congressman Lewis's legacy and, and what it means for her own work moving forward. Uh, here's what Destiny Bryant had to say to us. So knowing John Lewis's legacy is vital because I know without the work that he did and without the path that he kind of forged that I would not be where I am today knowing his life and knowing that he started his journey on the fight for civil rights 
and civil liberties back when he was in his early 20s. And in my generation, we know a John Lewis who was well established in age, but knowing history means that he started his journey when he was young and he fought aggressively until the day that he died to protect civil liberties and to make sure that every individual in this country had equal rights. And so that means a lot to me because number one, it shows me that I have a duty to be working as well, not only to enrich my own life, but to enrich those around me and others in this country in terms of doing what I can to make sure everyone has equal liberties in this country. And so in that same vein, you're somebody who's putting yourself forward for public service. You're a candidate for district attorney. How does that legacy carry on to you? What does it mean to continue that fight um, through your own work and, and the kinds of work that people who want a more just Georgia and the kinds of work that they should be doing? I think it means taking a step back and looking at what areas in the community and in society need aggressive attention and need aggressive work. During John Lewis's time, when he got into the movement, he was heavily focused on voting rights because at that time, there were tremendous obstacles for the opportunities for African-Americans to vote. He was concerned about police brutality. He was concerned about issues in the black community in terms of not having equal access to education. So I feel like my duty is to step back and look at what are the issues of my time that I feel like need to be addressed and then take those opportunities now that I have a better platform to address them. So addressing issues like mass incarceration, addressing issues like our education system, addressing issues like poverty and addressing issues like adverse childhood experiences that can be more prominent for people of color versus uh, people who are in more dominant mainstream communities. Those are the types of issues that I want to embrace. And knowing John Lewis's legacy gives me the fuel to be able to address those in a proper way. And is there anything else you'd like to say about Congressman Lewis's legacy before we go? Yes, I would like to say that his legacy is something that I hope does not die away with his physical death. I hope that the work that he has done helps fuel others in our society to rise to the occasion and channel that same energy to something that is positive and something that is good for all. His fight for civil liberties in a nonviolent way should be an example to all of us for how we need to move forward and really move towards reconciliation in our community to achieve what we need. So thanks to Destiny Bryant uh, for joining the podcast to share some of her reflections. Um, for the podcast crew here today, I'm interested in in your reflections too. Congressman Lewis had an important impact across so many issues, probably most important of those, his work in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Megan, as we say uh, goodbye to a to a true hero of the civil rights movement, what what is on your mind about Congressman Lewis's legacy and what it means for uh, the work that we're all called to do moving forward? Congressman Lewis has always held a near and dear place in my heart um, ever since I'm I, I knew who he was because of, uh, you know, American history and how impactful he was. But he was my congressman when I moved to Atlanta. Um, so I am in CD5 and I am really sad that we have lost the powerhouse of John Lewis. 
one of the things that I do want to call to mind is um, I have a really fond memory, not specifically of him, but of his office and of his staffers. Um, I had the opportunity to go lobby on the Hill. And you can tell that he just has this, this amazing staff and he encourages them to fight for what they believe in as well as be open about who they are and what they believe in. So it's just a really cool experience. They showed me around his office, which is full of chicken stuff. Um, if you are not familiar with why, then I encourage you to read up on John Lewis as well as read his uh, graphic novels. Uh, the first one, the first set's called March, and I believe the second set is called Run. And I'm just, I'm going to miss his leadership. Uh, he is, as we've been hearing, um, the conscience of Congress. And it, we have some really big shoes to fill in the Democratic Party. And I'm, I'm sad, but I'm also hopeful that we can take his legacy and build on it. Nabila, how about you? What are what are your reflections on Congressman Lewis's life? I mean, Congressman Lewis made such an impact in American history. Um, one of the things that um, he said was, uh, "You must find a way to get in the way. You must find a way to get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble." And for me, he's such an inspiration for our generation, for young people. Look, he got involved at a very young age. I mean, at 23, he was the youngest speaker um, at the Civil Rights March in Washington. At 25, he was um, participated in the Voting Rights March um, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And he um, led. Um, he was a movement leader at a very young age. And he, um, you know, intersected that into uh you know, electoral politics when he got elected to office. And so he's been a, a voice for people on the ground when so many uh, people in, in Congress today are disconnected to the issues that people face. But um, Congressman Lewis was, uh, you know, understood what was happening on the ground. And that's why I, I think that everyone in the country, you know, recognizes him being, you know, uh, America's soul. And, uh, really speaking truth to power and uh, he is he is a role model he is an inspiration um, he'll be dearly missed and I think it's up to all of us now to carry on the work that he started and spearheaded. Rachel? I think my favorite memory is watching a bunch of friends at a democratic event dance with him to Pharrell's Happy. Um, he's always seen as such a giant, legendary figure. And to see those moments of true happiness and friendship shine through are really special and unique. But I think beyond that, we don't need to fill his shoes. I think we need to take our own shoes and march forward in the same path on the same direction. Um, you know, pick up the torch, carry on the legacy, but we're not replacing him. And I think that's sort of something that people are scared to to broach is they feel like no one can replace him and no one has to. You know, we have so many incredibly inspiring, unique perspectives and voices in the civil rights and social justice spaces in the Democratic Party right now that are, you know, coming to age, that are blossoming. And I'm really excited to see what they do to put their own mark on this movement and to um, move forward with their own unique perspective inspired by John Lewis, rather than trying to imitate or replace him. And Luke? 
I mean, there's so much that everyone else has said, and I obviously uh, agree with all of it. And so the the only thing I could really add, I think, is I, I am a big fan of history, a big follower of politics, both local and national. And, and John Lewis is one of those exceptional people who, you know, you'd see him on TV and then I would like see him in Atlanta. And that's just like a very, very unique thing. And I think what I find so striking about John Lewis compared to a lot of other civil rights figures, a lot of other Congress people, a lot of other national leaders and obvious heroes is I, I think the most unique thing about him and it's something everyone's touched on without hitting on it directly is just he he never stopped wanting things to move forward you know like he always he used the past as as not you know the past was prologue for him of that you know like there's so much work left to be done and you know he he would reminisce but it would always come back to and and that's why we need to keep working <laughs> and it's like we've done all this stuff but we have to we have to keep going and keep working and there's so much left to to be done and i agree you know there's there's no point in trying to replace john lewis because you don't really need to because john lewis can remain even after his life as a source of inspiration and as someone who uh, can help you find the way to to move forward and so the the project of replacing him shouldn't exist because he should remain in our collective memories as an uh, as a inspiration for the leaders of today who will inspire people tomorrow um you know and so uh i i, I would hope that he you know would want us not to focus much on you know what it means to to go on without him and focus more on how you know, how to accomplish the things that he's left undone um, and, you know, continue his legacy. And there's plenty of ways to do that. So although his legacy and his impact are, are not easily replaced and, and not something um, the Democrats want to soon forget, unfortunately, uh, state law um, required Democrats themselves to take up a very hasty process in replacing him on the ballot for November's election. Um, and so, Rachel, this was something that we wanted to talk to you about. Um, our listeners, y'all might have seen this hasty process play out the other day or, or seen headlines and maybe even been surprised that all of a sudden there was very quickly uh, a name that will replace his on the ballot, State Senator Nakima Williams. Rachel, why did Democrats have to act so quickly to replace Congressman Lewis on the ballot? And, and what process did they have to follow to do that? Yeah, so this was a really interesting process and very unique. Unfortunately, we had no time to grieve. We had one business day from the knowledge of Congressman Lewis's death to replace his name on the ballot for the general election in November. So that's, you know, really tough. But that's state law. It requires us to let the Secretary of State know by 4 p.m. on the next business day that we, as the Democratic Party of Georgia, will be replacing that name. Um, so this is different from federal to state. Um, so some of you may know that Nakima Williams is also a state senator, and her um, being nominated for this seat uh, triggers a special election. So we will not be naming a nominee for that. We will have a special primary election. Um, so there's a lot to get into there, lots of sort of 
minutiae in the the laws that trigger various elections, special elections, etc. Um, but we ended up having to, as a party within one business day, decide how we would name a replacement and follow that procedure. So this process to me was very surprising. The the press that came out about about this long Zoom call where where Democrats debated the finalists. Uh, that would that were to be chosen from um, to replace Congressman Lewis's name on the ballot. The whole thing just seemed kind of surreal. And the general feeling among, among Democrats that I observed uh, was that this was a process that really needed to change uh, going forward. Um, Megan, what are your thoughts on on whether that process needs to change? I definitely agree that it well, I, th- I think you kind of implied that you thought it might need to change. And I think I think that's accurate. I don't think it's a process that takes into account humanity. It is really, really taxing on a party to ask to a- it's really taxing to ask an entire party to say, OK, here we know that somebody who is a party leader just died. Now figure out a plan and go ahead and make sure you get somebody in there within, you know, essentially eight business hours. Um, that's really not acceptable. It doesn't take into account the fact that there may not have been succession planning, that there may not be a process in place, that the process that may have been in place before didn't work. And it doesn't take into account the fact that making a decision in a time of grief is very difficult and is just it's not it's not an okay th- thing to ask somebody to do. Now people might counter that and say, okay, well you're the Democratic Party, you should have a plan, you should be succession planning. All of this should already be in hand. Well, the deal is that all of that stuff changes. It changes all the time. Um, we've had to change how we handle elections as a state. So clearly, the party also would be affected by things like that. Um, and it's just. I think that more time should be allowed. I think that it should be, you know, three days to five day, five business days. Um, I understand that that is still a very short time, but for the love, let the let the people that were affected by this have a minute. Nabila, part of what appeared to give Democrats so much heartburn uh, was this idea that party insiders were the ones who were ultimately going to make the selection, and and some observers called for the person who was ultimately selected uh, to fill Congressman Lewis's seat on the ballot, called for that person to resign on the first day of Congress in 2021 um, so that instead of having uh, party leaders select the person who would fill that seat, uh, a resignation would spur a special election where voters would get to decide. What did you make of that argument? Uh, Asking for... Uh, the person who was selected to step down. Um, do you think that that's something that they should do? And, and what other thoughts do you have about about this process? Sure. I mean, I this process was, I'm sure everyone would agree, not the most ideal way to um, nom- elect someone to be the next congressperson of your district. And, and, and this was triggered by um, you know, sadly with Congressman John Lewis's passing, um, with that being said, the I if if Joe Biden becomes president, right, and we take out Donald Trump, the first 100 days of an administration is so incredibly important. And I think if we were to 
asked the Cong- uh, the congresswoman, uh, the congressperson in January to step down, um, we would be without a representative for the fifth district when so many key important, important decisions were being made. Um, and so I think that another special would do more harm than good. Um, I think that it will be up to the congressperson to make sure that they are, you know, running on a platform um, advocating for the issues that the fifth district cares about and not giving people a reason to vote them out. So I think that we'll be watching very closely um, in the next two years. Um, But I don't think that we will see anyone resign come next year. And so um, I understand why people are calling for resignation, but I just don't think it's practical. Yeah, I want to jump in and agree with that. As, you know, the person on this podcast who is the resident of CD5, um, I don't want to be without a congressperson, right? So to your point, Nabila, it does more harm than good. And speaking as someone who would actually be represented by uh, current uh, party chair and Senator Nakima Williams, you know, assuming that she is elected, I'd rather have her than somebody we don't know yet. Um, and, and I would really like to have her in that seat when those first very important elections are occurring or those first very important votes are occurring in Congress. I'll piggyback off of that. Um, additionally, the voters of the 5th District do technically have the chance to vote for someone to fill the remainder of the term. And while that may realistically only be a few weeks, there is an election to fill the remainder of the term that will be up when whoever wins the general election wins that election in November. So there will be two different elections. And so do we have any, do y'all have any thoughts on, um, as far as I know, Governor Kemp is the one who has the responsibility to set the special election date. I believe that special election is in September. Is that right? Yes, it'll be September 29th. So one way in which Nakima Williams, and and we'll talk about her and her selection here in a second, but one way in which she might consider responding to calls uh, from people for the this seat in Congress to be filled with the will, reflecting the will of the voters, one way in which she might uh, reflect that view that people have is to actually run in the special election. Luke, do you think that she will run? Do we do we have any reporting or any insight about whether she will run for that spot? And uh, do you think that she should? I haven't heard anything about her running or not in that seat. So if someone else has, please please speak up after uh, and let me know. Um, but I think she should. I mean, you know, Nakima is, you know, the we haven't really talked about her selection yet. No, we're getting there. But I, I think to answer this question, I need to skip ahead a little bit and just say, like, Nakima makes a, a hell of a lot of sense to be the person to replace John Lewis in this circumstance when you have basically no time to do it. I, I mean, she would have been my guess, you know, of like who would have replaced him had he just retired, right? And, and had it been a normal circumstance based off of the fact that she is the state chair, she is a state senator, and she is someone who 
has taken his legacy quite literally and has you know got been getting into good trouble for quite some time now so you know if there is someone who can be the congressperson after john lewis in that same seat and be successful i've really think the list is pretty short and she's definitely on it and so with that in mind i mean i feel like if Nakima would like to make a lot of this conversation go away about like we should replace her through more democratic means, I think there is no better way than running and crushing <laughs> that special election, which I imagine she probably would. Like that will put that to bed. And I, I really don't see who could in this short time scale like run against her successfully. Um, I, I think that'd be a very hard proposition. And, and finally, the reason... I really think she should for more like pragmatic good governance reason is like if Nakima is going to be the congressperson from 2021 to 2023, which I may imagine she will be, I do not see a Republican winning that seat, then she should get in there as early as she possibly can and start doing congressperson stuff, you know? And so if she wins that election, she can get sworn in, she can start working, she can be the congressperson from that district. And I think that is really important and that, you know, it, it, I don't see anyone else doing that successfully because even a, who could be successful being the congressperson for the 5th district from September to January? Like, what are they going to be able to do? Whereas if it's her, there'll be a lot more. Well, it was interesting, you know, especially when you take a look at the the other four contenders uh, who put themselves forward for that seat. You had three relatively young uh, party figures. You had State Representative Park Cannon, Atlanta City Councilman Andre Dickens, and the president of the Georgia NAACP, James Woodall. They all put themselves forward. And then the fifth candidate who uh, put himself forward and who was considered uh, was former Morehouse College President Robert Franklin. Nabila, State Senator Williams was the ultimate selection here. Um, what do you make of her selection? Do you feel like she is the right person for that spot, or, or does that selection tell you anything about the priorities of Democrats, and um, would you like to see somebody else make a run for that seat? So I deeply admire Senator uh, Nikima Williams. I mean, I've known her for probably the past eight years now. Um, we were both in Young Democrats, uh, Georgia Young Democrats together. And I mean, she's been outspoken and, prog and uh, taking progressive stances on issues, uh, on voting rights, on health care. And so um, whether it was her work at Planned Parenthood or her work being a uh, state senator. So um I'm, I'm pleased with, you know, what her values are and what's in, and I, and I can, I think her values are going to indicate where she's going to be on policies in, in Congress today. With that being said, like, I, uh, I'm also friends with the people that were nominated as well, in, in addition to um, Senator Williams. And so Andre Dickens was, um, I managed his campaign in 2013. And I think he would have made a great congressperson as well. And I think we um, had a lot of great choices. And, and I really believe that, you know, uh, Senator Williams will, will be a, uh, a congresswoman that will give her district um, the voice it deserves. And, you know, like we say, no one's ever going to replace Congressman John Lewis. But I think, you know, Senator Nakima Williams is going to be the, the first Nakima Williams of her uh, community. And, and it's going to be powerful in her own right. So I'm really excited to see the work that she's going to do. 
uh, in Congress for uh, the state of Georgia. Anyone else want to share thoughts on on the selection of Senator Williams for this spot um, and, and what it signifies about the Democratic Party? Sure. So I also agree that Senator Williams is a phenomenal inspiration and role model. And um, I think she was the natural pick as well to follow in John Lewis's footsteps. I actually voted as a member of the Democratic Party executive committee. I was part of the group that voted on who the successor would be. And I voted for James Woodall instead of Nakima Williams after I knew that the vote would go towards Senator Williams. Um, And part of that was because of the process the executive committee chose. um, And part of that was to support a current young Democrat. Um, Nakima Williams is a former young Democrat and a continued ardent supporter of our organization. Um, But I felt I needed to support Park Cannon, Representative Cannon, or um, Major uh, James Woodall. Because those are current young voices um, that have been, that are currently active in our organization. And as the president of the Young Democrats, I represent that voice. Um, And I feel like that was sort of squashed in the process because we didn't have an opportunity to discuss. The deliberating body and the voting body were sort of two different groups because we had a nominating committee that was appointed by the board of directors, which are the, I believe, seven elected positions at the top of the state party, including Nakima as chair. And the executive committee is a group of different positions um, such as the Young Democrats of Georgia president, like myself. So it was difficult because I received the names and the rest of the executive committee received the five names on the short list that we would choose from moments. I don't believe it was even an hour before the Zoom call that was open to the public and the press began, and we had to begin the process to vote on the successor. And Rachel, with that process being so unique, is Unique. Is there anything else our listeners should know about what it was like to be a part of that process or um, anything else that would inform the way in which Democrats would advocate for that process to change going forward? Sure. Um, So this process is state law, and the way to change it is to contact your state representatives, um, whether that's your state, your state house member or your state Senate member. And A lot of people think that, you know, your congressional district, your congressman is where everything happens. But this is a very great example of how state and local legislation is just as important as federal legislation. Um, So I definitely encourage everyone to look up who their state senator and state house rep are and contact those people, get to know them, build relationships with them um, so that they can let you know when things like this come up and you can be informed. Most of them have weekly or monthly newsletters, and you can understand what issues are coming up that they're dealing with. Most of them want to hear from their constituents. Um, So I think that's really important, and that's something that's overlooked. A lot of people believe, you know, the president is the one who's making all of the decisions, and it simply does not work that way. Um, But a little bit more about the process. The board of directors chose a nominating committee that was full of both Georgia and 5th Congressional District leaders. And in order to 
make that process as representative and as transparent as possible. Um, I believe that Nikima actually recused herself from everything as soon as she decided she wanted to run for this seat. Um, so this process was sort of set up by the board of directors, which she is the chair of, but she wasn't actively involved in leading these meetings or making these decisions. The nominating committee was um, some big names that most of your listeners may have heard of, such as Stacey Abrams, um, Jason Carter, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. And those people were tasked with looking through over 130 applications that were uh, submitted to the state party between the time of Congressman Lewis's death and I believe 6.30 p.m. the next day. So those people were able to submit those applications very quickly. Um, and then the that nominating committee had to come up with a short list of three to five people before the meeting um, and present those names to the executive committee, which was about 44 people, to meet at noon on Monday to make that vote. Sorry if I got a little rambly there. This is a crazy, complicated process with lots of different moving pieces that all seem to happen all at once. No kidding. All right. So let's wrap the show today with a quick update on where we are um, in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So Georgia continues to have uncontrolled community spread of COVID-19, resulting in increased cases, strained hospital systems, and complicating some of these return to normal decisions like reopening schools. Despite this, Governor Kemp has sued the city of Atlanta over its requirement that residents wear masks and that businesses are being encouraged to return to some of the initial guidelines uh, that were in place when the COVID-19 pandemic uh, was initially uh, hitting the state. Um, Just to give listeners a sense of of where we are at, uh, we do continue to experience uncontrolled community spread. Um, as of this recording, uh, Georgia counts more than 170,000 cases of COVID-19 in this state, and sadly, more than 3,500 lives have been lost uh, to this disease. Um, the outbreak of this pandemic looks a little bit different than it did earlier in the year. Uh, cases have increased more frequently among young people, um, and initially, when this spike began to happen, uh, that hopefully was uh, was accompanied by a lower death rate. Um, sadly, at this time, deaths are also starting to climb. And it is a good reminder uh, for listeners that young people, people who are relatively healthy are, are not are not totally immune uh, to this this disease as well. Uh, Luke, the main action by Governor Kemp in the last couple of weeks has been to actually launch a lawsuit against the city of Atlanta over local requirements that people wear masks and uh, this call from Mayor Bottoms for the city to reinstitute phase one guidelines, which are, are tougher than the restrictions that are currently in place statewide per the governor's executive order. Can you tell us what the latest is on that lawsuit and your thoughts on whether this lawsuit is worth the cost. I mean, to me, we'll talk about this, but to me, it's it's a little bit of an academic question regarding executive orders and 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 what takes precedence between local and state governments. Is that 
somewhat academic question worth the cost of confusing messaging around masks and the risk of COVID-19? No, like just unquestionably no. I don't know what Brian Kemp is trying to accomplish here other than like trying to prove everyone that he's the governor of the state of Georgia and no one tells Georgians what to do besides him. Uh, That really seems to be the only goal in this because unlike some other governors or other public officials, I mean, Kemp has been okay on the issue of masks. It's not like he's saying no one should wear masks because they kill you. Like he is being... Like, he is supporting mask wearing. He did a whole campaign trying to encourage people to do mask wearing. And I I don't really know what the goal behind this is, and especially with as tight as the budget is, I don't really see why we're spending taxpayer dollars on this lawsuit and making, you know, not only, you know, state funds be wasted, but county and municipal funds as well, since there are several uh, counties and municipalities that are part of this lawsuit. So... That is a very big frustration of mine. The The only guess I could have is that it's not really about the masks and because these issues are complicated and uh, multifaceted, that the mask is just the thing that people have, uh, you know, put their attention on. The other part of this is the phase one restrictions. And I assume that really what this is is that Brian Kemp does not like the fact that some counties, some cities are wanting to roll things back and close things down while he is wanting to keep everything open because that is what he thinks is a good idea. It's obviously not a medically good idea, but he thinks the economy and the uh, political situation of closing the economy down is worse than people getting sick and dying from the disease. He's made it very clear that that is his priority. And so if your priority is to keep things open and keep the economy going, this lawsuit makes a hell of a lot of sense. Nabila and Megan, what are your general takeaways about the prioritization here. We're going to talk a little bit about the challenge that this creates for schools, but central to the governor's messaging, as he has talked about local restrictions, as he has talked about all of the other things that are before consideration for the state, is balancing the public health outcomes with the economic outcomes. What are your thoughts on the prioritization there? You can bring back the economy. You cannot bring back the loss of a loved one. Here, here. Yes. I think, uh, you know, the governor is being incredibly irresponsible. I think that he is being on brand with his stupidity. Um, you know, I'm going to be very forced <laughs> with, with that. I mean, it was a national embarrassment when he went on live television and said he did not know that asymptomatic people were contagious. Um, now he is Um, encouraging people to wear masks if they want to see, you know, be able to go to football games. I mean, he is, he he should be implementing a mask mandate. Okay. Uh, We know the science that uh, wearing masks will reduce transmission of the coronavirus in Texas. They have, Governor Abbott has uh, mandated a mask mandate. People are wearing masks. I live in Gwinnett County, one of the, one of the hardest hit counties uh, of COVID, about 13% are positive. And people are not wearing masks. We need to see real leadership. And it is just um, completely uh, disheartening to see our governor act so irresponsibly. Um, So I I completely disagree with everything, pretty much everything that he's done so far. For sure. I I agree 100% with you, Nabila. And I think the thing that this lawsuit is just a political pissing contest. 
it is for Kemp to basically just pander to his base, um, as well as it is causing major problems for people who are choosing to follow uh, WHO and CDC guidance by wearing the masks. Um, I've been threatened for wearing a mask in my building. There's a little bit more to that story there, but there is there is a part of what happened was basically it was because I decided to wear a mask and to openly say I'm wearing a mask to protect other people. Um, and, and somehow that makes me a sheep or that makes me stupid or that means that I'm like, you know, listening too much to the government or whatever. But, um, honestly, if I were listening to the government, I'd be listening, I guess, to Kemp. The logic is confusing. I don't think there is any, but basically what you said, Nabila, like, this is just a disaster and Kemp is handling it horribly. Yeah. And I think that the challenge with reopening schools, I think, is so emblematic of this question of, of prioritization. Um, I have seen it framed in multiple different places, so I, I, I'm not sure exactly who to cite this to, but that we have prioritized opening things like bars and restaurants before schools. And if we had flipped the script on that and made a plea to people to do things like wear a mask and social distance and and um, and do all the things that people need to do to do that with the goal of making sure that kids can go back to school in the fall, having that be the goalpost that we were all aiming for. To me, that feels like a more compelling rationale for for social solidarity, a, a more powerful message. Um, and and for a lot of parents who, are struggling with so many tough decisions related to uh, their children either being kept out of school, meaning that they have to find childcare for them, or they have to uh, they have to make decisions about whether or not to go to work or take care of their children, and and be concerned about the education that their children have access to during this time. Um, that to me would have been, I think, a much more motivating factor there, and so. In that light, it's interesting the message that Governor Kemp is sending related to opening schools. He wants to see students back in the classroom, um, despite the fact that he is not pushing full force uh, the message around public health and and the things that would make that a more tenable prospect by reducing community spread. I just want to open this up to the group here. What do y'all think about this conversation about about reopening schools, about all the challenges that come with that, and what we've lost and and how we failed in this response if at the end of the day we get to the beginning of the fall and opening schools is just completely untenable because we have not beaten the virus. I think the most frustrating thing is is the fact that most of America has just given up on the virus and and not i don't think it's everyday americans have given up because like frankly it is not our jobs to be epidemiologists and figure out like how do you be a global pandemic like that is no individual's job that is a you know federal or at least a state institution level job and yeah one one of the things that uh I, i saw recently that was really striking to me was you know former 
uh, Obama official Andy Slavitt, who was the acting administrator of the Centers of Medicaid and Medicaid uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services, and he's had a lot of great COVID content out there. He's like, we're making a choice to fail at this. Like, there are ways to handle it. There are models in other places that you could follow, and we're just choosing not to do those things. And so, I mean, uh, effectively. The decision to open schools, in my mind, is is not a decision at this point. If you were making a decision based off of what was medically best and what was the safest thing to do, you would no way make the decision to open schools. You this is this is us giving up. We have given up, and that we are just going to wing it and hope for the best and see what happens. And you know, at this point, that's just it's not a good option. It's not something that people should look at in any other way. Because if a public official goes up and says, we're going to open schools and we're going to do the best we can and we can make, you know, uh, we're going to make sure it's safe. The only way they could be honest to you is if they then followed up that sense with because we have given up and we have no other ideas. And Mm -hmm. that that would be honest. That would be the honest thing to do, because if you look at other countries, some countries like Italy, who were in just as bad a shape as we were. They're out of it now. They're mostly out of it. They have gogging a handle on this. And again, that that tweet thread, which we can put in show notes from Andy Slavitt, really just shows like how we have made a conscious decision to do this poorly and continually continuing to uh, provide opportunities for community spread through opening schools is just another way in which we have given up. And it's very frustrating that we live in a country that is more than capable of solving this, but has decided not to because our leaguers just think it's too hard, I guess. I absolutely agree. And I think that part of it is the toxic political, um, the toxic political sphere that we've created in our country um, where everything is politicized and polarized. I'm seeing nurses, certified nurses and doctors who are working against this pandemic day and night who are married to people who don't believe it's real because of where they get their news. And we've given up not only on the pandemic, but on fact. Yep. As my father says, it is spherical shit. Shit, no matter what angle you look at it from. I think it's our utter lack of leadership that has gotten us to a point where, you know, the virus is out of control. We have, you know, the highest number of cases, People are lines are backed up to even get tests. We don't even have real contact tracing yet. Now we're trying to send our kids back to schools. Um, you know, I, I uh, on Twitter actually posted a meme that said, "Teachers are not responsible for the recovery of the economy. Babysitting children are getting us back to normal. Stop trying to guilt us into risking our lives for the government's failure to act." Um, and I think that's very true. I I think that we need to do this in a very in a responsible way that protects. Um, children's lives. And at the same time, we need to be, you know, uh, making sure that parents have the tools to be able to educate their kids at home. And so now we're, the disparities have always existed. And we've heard time and again, how COVID has exacerbated these disparities. And so making sure that, you know, folks from low income families have broadband access, that they have tablets, computers, um, to actually, you know, continue their education. And so um, I think the best thing to do is to, you know, keep our kids at home, make sure they have the tools to be successful and beat back this virus by making sure our, our leaders are actually implementing policies that will mitigate the number of cases. Yeah, because one, one thing 
I want to add real quick is like if you need one example of why we're not ready. So I I thought I had been I I had been exposed to someone who tested positive, and so I got a test in Athens Clark. It took me. I found out on a Tuesday, it took me until Saturday to get tested, and then it took me until the following Saturday to actually get the result, which thankfully was negative. But, like, the quarantine period was over. By the time I got the test, it did it did no good for me. And so if it's taking seven days to get tests turned around and taking four days to just get scheduled for the, a test... What are we doing here? And like that was in Clark County. This is a county that's taking it very seriously. So anyone who's pretending that things are going well and that people have the resources they need to do this is is just completely out of their minds and not primarily concerned with health. They're primarily concerned with something else. And so that should be very concerning for everyone in my mind. Yeah, and I think all of this, just to close here, I think all of this really highlights for me how infuriating the impact on schools is because you don't have the tools in place to manage the spread of COVID. The cost of keeping kids out of school is not negligible uh, for a lot of kids. They access more than just an education at school. They access meals. They access um, important things for their own social development, and it also enables uh, parents who don't have the ability to pay uh, for childcare to to be able to work and and have a place for their kids to be. So it's, I think we can talk more about the specific challenges for schools going forward, but it just to me highlights how steep the cost of failure has been, and and just adds to my disappointment in the in the situation that we have found ourselves in. Um, I hate to leave it on a down note, uh, but it's 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 tough not to these days. Um, but I want to thank all of y'all uh, for joining us on the podcast today. And we're especially excited for you, Nabila, to continue to join us to offer your insights and analysis throughout the fall. And special thanks to Rachel for joining us and walking us through that complicated and really unfortunate process that, that Democrats had to go through to replace Congressman Lewis's name on the ballot. It's great to be on today, uh, and I look forward to the next Peach Pod. And um, everyone, please stay safe out there, and um, we will all work on this together and make sure that our kids are safe, our communities are safe, and uh, we're in this together, and we'll we'll defeat this virus. Thank you all so much for having me on, and uh, please don't forget to vote for the August 11th runoff if you live in a place that has one. Yes, thanks. Thanks for being on, Rachel. Nice to have two, you know, a former and a current YEG president on the show. Soon, That's soon right. we'll be a, soon we'll have an entire show of just YEG presidents. Where's I'm where's so Elrod? down for that. Sarah Beeson too. As always, thanks so much for having me on. And um, yeah, y'all, wash your hands. Don't touch your face. And I'm touching my face now. And. Well, Luke is apparently screwed because he's touching his face. I'm in my house. One day we'll be able to touch our faces again. Anyway, that's all, folks. Thanks, y'all. Bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.